Well, it is great to be back with you guys this weekend. Let me, let me re-preference that. It's, it is great to be back with you this weekend. I was going to say it's great to be back from vacation. That would be a lie. So I'm trying to figure out how to say it. It's great to be back with you this weekend. And we're in the fourth week of our series that we're calling Multiply. We're learning how to handle our money the way God wants us to handle our money. And this is an important series for us to go through because if we can figure out how to handle our money the way God wants us to handle our money, there's going to be a lot less stress and pressure and tension in our financial world. I shared a few weeks ago that 84% of married couples say the number one stress issue in their marriage is money. And it's because we don't know how to handle our money. And this weekend, we're going to look at, we're going to talk about what I believe drives a lot of our financial tension, a lot of our issues, a lot of our pressure. It's an awful little word. It's called discontentment. Let's just say it out loud together. Discontentment. One more time with feeling. Discontentment. And let's be honest, by a show of hands, how many of you have ever been discontent with what you have? Just raise your hand. Raise your hand. Everybody else is a liar. We've all been discontent with what we have. We've all been there. It's a primarily, if you've traveled around the world, it's primarily a Western thing. It seems to be getting worse and worse as our culture and our society gets more and more materialistic. But I got to tell you, we live in a world where we're constantly reminded of what we don't have. We live in a world where we're constantly reminded of what we need, but we didn't know we needed it until we saw somebody else with it. We live in a world where we're constantly reminded of something that we need that we didn't know we needed because we didn't even know it existed. But now we know that it exists, we need it. I mean, have you ever walked into Costco to get one thing and you walked out with 10 things? Why is that? Because you went into the store and you saw something that you needed that you didn't know it needed, but now, now you know that it exists you really need it. I mean, that's just the world that we live in. That's discontentment. That's something that we struggle with. There's something in all of us that makes us want to pursue bigger and better and shinier and newer and faster. And if that's not bad enough to make matters worse, we live in a culture where almost every single day we actually see the stuff that we don't have. Almost every single day we see the stuff that we want, we actually see the stuff. We didn't know we needed until we saw it and then we realized we need it and it just fuels this desire in us. I've got to have it. See, what I thought was great, I had was great until I saw what you have and now that I see what you have, I really need that too. I wanna have that too. I just went through this recently. I, uh, a few years ago, I, I wanted to get a truck and I went over to Crossroad Ford and I, and I started looking at some trucks and there's a, there's a Ford F-150 and it was the limited edition. They only made 3,500 of them. Now here's the thing, I fell in love with that truck. Here's the problem, that truck costs more than the first house I ever bought 38 years ago. And I don't know about you, but there's just something inside of me that says, you cannot buy something, a truck, that costs more than your first house cost 38 years ago. So I wanted one, you know, I kind of think, and I, I kind of like to have that truck. And so I had a friend that worked there, and I said, I want you to find me one of those trucks. I want to use trucks. See, this is what I've learned. You can afford to drive anything you want. Just depends on how old it is, right? And so I'm like, find me one of those trucks. And it took him about a year and a half. And finally one day he called me and I went over there and there it was sitting in the parking lot. It was like the heavens parted, the sun shined down. I mean, it was, it was right there. That F-150 Limited, number 2,585 out of 3,500 printed right there on a little piece of metal right there in my truck. 
And I opened that thing up, and I got in it, and I thought, this is my truck. Now, let me tell you why it's so special. First of all, it's got a 6.2 liter engine, okay? What that means is this. If my truck is parked in Walmart, and you pull in and park beside me in a Prius, when you get back, your car will be gone because my truck will eat that Prius. I mean, this, this is a bad truck, okay? It's got pipes. It is so loud. When I crank it up in my garage in the morning, it wakes up the whole neighborhood that says, Mike's going to the gym. You ought to be going to the gym too. It's that loud. It is an incredible truck. It's got a sunroof. It's got this special edition leather seats. Think about this. It's got running boards, but not your typical running boards. When I open the door, my running boards come out. When I shut the door, my running boards go back onto my truck. It is absolutely amazing. I have mood lighting in my truck. I have this little button. See, I didn't even test drive this thing. I said, what, what do you want for it? I paid him. I got in it, drove it off. I'm finding things all the time. There's a little button that I can push. I have, I have mood lighting in the floorboard of my truck. If I'm feeling red, I push red. If I'm feeling royal blue, I push it and it will turn royal blue. If I got somebody in my truck, I, I don't like them, I want them to get sick and nauseated, I push Carolina blue. I just got all kinds of things that I can do with my truck. Not only that, I have seats, not only seats that heat up when it's cold, I have seats that cool down when it's hot. Now, it took me a while to find that button. But one time I found it, and Laura and I, we were going to go have dinner with my parents in Durham. And right before she got in the truck, I pushed the button so her seat would start to cool down. But I didn't tell her. So we're driving. It's like November. We're driving to Durham. And she's like, I think maybe I'm getting sick. And I said, what's the matter, honey? She says, I'm feeling chilled all of a sudden. I'm oh, honey, you may be feeling And finally, I said, look, look at that button right there. It made your seat cold. I mean, I have so much. I love that truck until a few weeks ago, I rode in my friend's new truck. See, mine's about four years old now, you know. His had newer technology, better display, cooler knobs, you know. It had that smell. You know what it reminded me of? There's this little place in Boone, North Carolina, that I like to buy cowboy boots. And I love to go there because the floor is uneven, and it's wood, and it kind of creaks when you walk. And it is wall-to-wall cowboy boots. And if I could just stand in there and smell that. See, that's what heaven's going to smell like. Okay, when I got in my new friend's truck, it was like, it smelled like the boot store. You know what my truck smelled like when I got back in it? grandchildren, <laughs> Chick-fil-A, pizza, you know? And I immediately began to plot and strategize how I could get a truck like my friend's new truck. And I thought, there it is. That's it. That's discontentment. And I'm telling you, it is in all of us to some capacity. It may not be a truck. It may be a house. You built your dream house, 11-foot ceilings until you're Fran built a house with 12-foot ceilings. Honey, well, what are we going to do? We thought this was our forever home, but we got to build a new house, right? You bought the biggest TV you could find. You loved it. You invited all your friends over to see your TV, and then someone got one three inches bigger. And all of a sudden, yours isn't adequate anymore, right? Or maybe, maybe it's new technology. I mean, people will line up around the block to get a brand new phone when they have a perfectly good phone that may be less than a year old. See, we all have this in us. But see, if you stop and analyze it, you realize that it's insanity because you realize if you go down that road, it is never, ever 
going to end. I mean, the problem with discontentment is that it is an appetite that is never fully satisfied. So what do you do with that appetite? Because, see, we know that satisfying an appetite doesn't make it go away. I typically get hungry for lunch about 11 o'clock every day. And I think I have to at least wait till 1130. And then go to the Golden Corral, belly up to the trough, just plow down. You come back, your belly's extended, you want to take that nap. But you know what? What happens by 5 o'clock? 2 o'clock if you went for Chinese food. But 5 o'clock if you ate real food, right? You're hungry again. It never goes away. In the same way, you'll never get so much stuff in your life that you're finally so content that you won't, you won't want more stuff. In fact, it's the opposite. In fact, you know what happens to an appetite when you feed it? It grows. That's why the more stuff you have, the more stuff you want. See, I grew up really poor. I didn't have a whole lot of stuff, so we didn't really want a whole lot. But as you get older, you get more stuff, and you just want more stuff. So what do we do with that? I mean, how do we get a handle on our discontentment? I mean, if it's an appetite that we know it's never going to go away, now what? What do you do? I mean, I guess you could move to a deserted island where you won't be reminded every day of the things that you want and you need, but that's probably not going to happen. So what do you do when you live in this kind of culture that just fuels and it just drives our discontentment? Because this is what I want you to understand. If we can't get a handle on our discontentment, it has the potential to drive us to financial ruin. So what do we do? What do we do? Well, if you have your Bible this weekend, 1 Timothy chapter 6, turn over there. 1 Timothy chapter 6, if you don't have your Bible, that's okay. We're going to put the verses up on the screen. But as you're turning, let me just tell you, this is a passage of Scripture that once again is addressed to rich people. And let me just say, by New Testament standards, about 95% of us fall into the category of being rich because we have more than we need. And in the first century when this was written, if you had more than you needed, you were considered a rich person. Understand, in the first century, when this was written, most people only ate one meal a day. Most people only had one set of clothes, and they would wear those clothes until they wore out, and then they would get another set of clothes. I mean, in the first century, you worked every day. In fact, if you were Jewish in the first century, taking the Sabbath off was risky because it meant you may not eat that day. It was a hand-to-mouth kind of society. And I know that we feel all kinds of financial pressure in our society, but you know what? Most of us, as we sit here this weekend, we are wealthy compared to this first century culture that we're looking at this weekend. Now, understand, 1 Timothy is a letter that was written to a guy named Timothy. See, if you're new to church, see how easy the Bible is? It's easy to understand. It was written by a guy named the Apostle Paul to this young man named Timothy, somebody that he had mentored. He was kind of like a life coach. And Paul tells Timothy how he can be content when he's been blessed with a lot and you have the potential, the ability to get a lot more. Let's begin, verse 6, 1 Timothy chapter 6. He says, but godliness. And that just simply means that you are following God. So think of it that way. Following God with contentment is great gain. So in other words, Paul says, Timothy, if your life is committed to following God, having a relationship with God, and at the same time, you have contentment, you're set, you're good to go, you've got it going on. And then he goes on to write, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. And nobody is going to argue with that. We all know that, see? But that doesn't seem to stop us from living our lives as if somehow our life depends on what we own. And we talked about this just a few weeks ago. That's why we make it, we spend it. We make it, we spend it. We make it, we go to the bank, we go to the mall. We make it, we go to the bank and deposit. We go to Amazon.com. It's because we feel like our life actually does consist of what we own, what we possess, the next new gadget. So Paul says this, you didn't bring anything into this world, 
And just so you know, you're not leaving with anything. So it ought to be pretty easy, easy to be content with little because, you know, you started out with nothing. If you have anything, you, you have more than you started out with. And when you leave, you're not going to leave with anything anyways. And so Paul writes here, he says, contentment, when you think about it, it should be pretty easy to find. Verse 8. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. To which most of us are tempted to say, you know, that may work out for you. I don't think that's going to work for me. But if we're honest, when we hear that, there's something inside of us that tells us there's probably some truth. There's probably some wisdom to that philosophy. I mean, we probably should be content if we have enough to eat. We probably should be content if we have enough to wear. That probably should be enough. Anything more than that, when you get right down to it, it's just icing on the cake. But there's something inside of us, especially as Americans, we just are not satisfied with that. We don't want just enough food just to get through the day. We want, we desire more than just the clothes that we have on our back. And since that's the case, these next few verses are for us. Verse 9, those who want to get rich. Now, originally the Bible was written in Greek, later on translated to, uh, trans, translated to English. But when it was written in the Greek, literally it says this, people who want to live richly. In other words, people who want to have more than they need. People who want to amass more than they need. People who want more than they can eat in a day. More places than they can live in a day. More clothes than they can wear in a day. He says, verse 9, those who want to get rich are live richly. Now notice this. Fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. See, that's the kind of preaching I grew up with. That's not very encouraging, is it, right? But Paul says this. For those of you who aren't content with the food that you have to eat today, for those of you who aren't content with the clothes you have to wear on your back today, you need to know that you've set yourself up for some potential pitfalls. You need to know, Paul says, you've set yourself up from some certain temptations that you're not going to be tempted by if you don't have more than you need. And I don't think I need to belabor this point because we all know people who were ruined because... They had too much money. I mean, think about it. Maybe it was because they had so much that they were able to just have great credit and a great credit score and they were able over time to borrow more than was wise. Maybe it was because they had so much money they didn't really worry about it. They didn't track it. Then all of a sudden one day they realized that they were actually spending about 110% of their income. Maybe it was just simply because no matter what they had, it was just never enough. But Paul says here, when you have more than you need, you need to understand there are temptations that you can fall prey to that you would not fall prey to if you didn't have more than you needed. And so he says, if your desire in life is to live richly, watch out. You need to beware. You need some boundaries that will keep you away from the pitfalls, that will keep you away from the temptations that only rich people can experience. Verse 10, for the love of money, right? Literally, it says this, prioritizing the pursuit of money over other things. That's what it means. Prioritizing the pursuit of money, for example, over your morals. Prioritizing the pursuit of money over your values or say your ethics. Prioritizing the pursuit of money over your family. When you do that, Paul tells us in verse 10, the love of money, this pursuit of money, or prioritizing the pursuit of money over other things, it's a root of all kinds of evil. And a lot of you sitting listening, you would agree with that statement. In fact, some of you would have to admit 
the pursuit of money, that's what ripped our home. That's what destroyed our family. Maybe it's because both you and your spouse, you were into your work, you were consumed by your work, you made a lot of money, and because you had so much, there was a constant pursuit to get more and more and more until one day you sat down and realized what in the world has happened to us and your values were all distorted. I literally know people who have been to jail because they prioritize the pursuit of money over other things. And it wasn't that they didn't have plenty of money, but it was never enough. They always wanted more. And that's why Paul says, listen, you got to understand, this pursuit of money, prioritizing money, the pursuit of it over other things leads to all kinds of evil. Verse 10, some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. And I also know people who've done that. Maybe you do too. In fact, some of you may be back this weekend from having wandered off, kind of gotten distant from God because of your pursuit of wealth. Maybe God had to take away all of your wealth to bring you back into a relationship with him. Or maybe you just finally hit the wall and you realize, wow, this isn't going anywhere. So you get it. You understand the grief that Paul's talking about. So Paul says that people have actually wandered from their faith because they had more than they needed. And again, right now, this doesn't sound very encouraging, but when you get to verse 11, Paul begins to shift and he gives us the practical side of this. And he says in verse 11, but you, man of God, and he's talking to Timothy, flee from all of this and pursue something entirely different. And you may not realize it, but in this verse, verse 11, Paul gives us the framework that will allow us to deal with our lack of contentment. He says this, he says, if you have more than you need, that would be most of us. He says, if you have more than you ever imagined you would have, if you're like me, that's a lot of us. If you have extra, again, that's, that's many of us. Paul says the temptation will be to pursue all the things that you can provide for yourself with your extra. The temptation will be to allow the pursuit of money to begin to impact all of your decisions. And so Paul says this, if you're one of those people who has more than they need, he said, you have to make a conscious decision to flee. You have to make a conscious decision to turn from one thing and you have to make the conscious decision to pursue something else. In other words, we have to make this intentional decision that we're going to rechannel our desire for more and more and more stuff. And we have to take all of that energy, all of that emotion, we have to take all of that, all that passion and we have to decide that we're going to pursue something entirely different. And Paul is saying in this letter that he wrote to young Timothy, it's the only way we can keep from falling into this trap of not being content. We've got to flee one thing. We have to pursue something else. We have to figure out how to redirect our time, redirect our money, redirect our energy. In other words, the way that you deal with discontentment isn't by trying to be content. The way you deal with discontentment isn't trying to pretend that you don't want something that you really do want. The only way Paul says you can deal with it is by fleeing the pursuit of more and bigger and better and shinier and newer and you redirect your energy, you redirect your time, you redirect your money, your wealth towards something entirely different. And if you drop down a few verses, Paul unpacks it a little bit. But if you get to verse 17, he begins to give us some specifics of how we do this. He says this, 
Command those who are rich in this present world. That would be those who have more than they need, more than if they have extra. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. So do you know what that tells us? That tells us this is not a guilt trip message. Paul says this. He says, if you're rich in this present world, understand, it's because God in his grace has provided you with certain things for your enjoyment. Paul says, if God's provided it, you should enjoy your wealth. If you get to live in a nice house, enjoy it. If you get to drive a nice car, enjoy it. If you get to be a member of a country club, enjoy it. If you get to take nice vacations, enjoy it. If you have a healthy retirement fund, enjoy it. Enjoy your wealth. If you, you should enjoy being rich in this present world. But Paul says here to Timothy, warn them not to make the pursuit of things. Warn them not to make the pursuit of wealth their chief pursuit. They need to be pursuing something entirely different. And in the process of pursuing something entirely different, while they're doing it, it's okay. It's okay to enjoy the things that God has blessed them with. And then he gets even more specific in verse 18. He says, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds. What that means is this. It means that we are to use our extra time, we are to use our extra money to do things intentionally and purposefully for other people. In other words, when someone looks at your life, instead of being amazed by what you drive and where you live and what you have, they should be amazed with what you've done with what you drive and where you live and what you have. And then he says in verse 18, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share, verse 19, in this way. In other words, if you live this way that Paul's talking about, this idea of fleeing one way of living and pursuing another way of living, in this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that, now notice this last phrase, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. And I think what Paul is saying there. And this is such a great message for Americans. We've confused that the life of wealth and the pursuit of wealth and comfort is the real life. But Paul says, no, 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 no. You're going to have to do something different if you want to take hold of a life that's truly life. I live in 12 Oaks out in Holly Springs. I live in a beautiful house. But I got to tell you, it's a weird neighborhood. I mean, I told you, I got, I got neighbors that drive golf carts around the neighborhood. You can't even take them on the golf course. They just drive them around the neighborhood. In fact, last year I experienced something I've never experienced. Kids coming trick-or-treating in golf carts. I'm like, get your lazy little butt out of the golf cart and work. You need the exercise, right? So I was down at the pool a couple of weeks ago, and I run into a family that goes to Hope, and, and I see them all the time. They're great neighbors. They've been at Hope for a long time. And I see the mom, and she's got a little 10-year-old girl with her. And I just struck up a conversation. I said, how you doing? You know, how are you enjoying living here? And she stopped and her daughter kind of wandered off. She said, honestly, Mike, she said, I'm really struggling. I said, why are you struggling? She says, because I feel like we're raising our daughter in an environment that's not real life. She said, this isn't real. Kids riding around in golf carts. Kids learning to play golf when they're four years old. Kids having a pool that they can go to and lifeguards to take care of. This isn't real life. That's what Paul is saying right here. Paul says that the temptation for those who have a lot 
is to take hold of a life at the end of the day that isn't really life. In other words, the temptation is to take hold of a life that's totally focused on pursuing more and bigger and better and newer and shinier. But at the end of the day, you realize, man, this isn't really life. You realize this is totally unfulfilling in the law and call. There's no life. There's no satisfaction in this pursuit. In fact, sometimes you look at yourself and you think, I'm kind of disgusted by myself and this constant pursuit. So Paul says to Timothy, listen, tell those rich people to do good. Tell them to be rich in good deeds. Tell them to be generous. Tell them to be willing to share. And Paul says if they will leverage their stuff this way, then they will experience what it means to really live. And as a bonus, even though they're wealthy, even though they've been blessed, they will avoid the temptations. They will avoid the pitfalls that go along with being wealthy. And so this tells us that if we fall into the category of people that have been blessed financially, and we do, we do. I told you, if you make more than $31,400 a year, you're in the top 1% of the richest people on the planet. So we fall into this category, then we've got to make some decisions. We can't just try to be content, that never works. We have to flee the pursuit of one way of handling our wealth, and then we have to intentionally pursue another way of handling our wealth. And if the light still hasn't come on yet, this is what Paul is saying. Paul is telling us here in this passage that generosity is what bridles our discontentment. Generosity is what curves our appetite for more. In other words, we can't make our discontentment go away. You can't get up tomorrow and say, from here on out, I'm going to be content. We can't pretend we don't want things. We can't avoid the mall forever. We can't avoid the catalogs forever. You're not going to avoid Amazon.com forever. You see, what we can do is we can learn to manage our appetite. And this is what the New Testament teaches. Planned and strategic generosity is what helps us curb our appetite of greed. It puts a bridle on our discontentment. It's what keeps us from allowing our discontentment to drive us in all kinds of unhealthy directions. That's why in this series we keep talking about priority percentage giving. Priority percentage giving says, I am going to give a percentage of my income away first before I, give it, before I spend it all on myself. Gary and I were talking this week and I was reading a book and I quoted him something I said yeah I can relate to this see I've been pastoring for 36 years I can remember a time when people tied to the church now people tied to the retirement fund and they think that they're being wise but that's not what this is saying Paul's saying no no that's not what I'm talking about Paul says you got to give it away you got to become a person of generosity you've got to get involved in priority percentage giving that kind of giving curves our appetite for more. That kind of giving bridles our discontentment. Let me tell you why it works. When you think about it, in the culture we live in, we're constantly made aware of what we don't have. But see, we have to go out of our way to discover what other people don't have. I mean, let's just be honest. Most of us can live in most of this area. Most of us can live somewhere in the triangle and never be aware of anybody else's need. Do you know why? Nobody's knocking on our door asking for food. Nobody's sleeping on the sidewalk out in front of our house. In fact, if we're honest, most of us, we don't even have a relationship with a genuinely poor person. That's just the reality of where we live in this world. We live in one of the wealthiest, most affluent places in the world. Most of us would prefer to keep it that way. Because you know what? 
If we can't see it, then we can pretend it doesn't exist. So every day, think about this. We live in a culture where we are made aware of what we don't have, but we want. But we can go months and years and not be aware of what someone else doesn't have, but they actually need. So here's the question. How do we counteract that? Well, the only thing I know you can do is to intentionally make some decisions that are going to bring you into an awareness of what others need. Because I'm telling you, the only way we bridle our discontentment is by turning our attention away from what we don't have, but we could have, and we choose to focus our attention on what somebody else doesn't have, but they actually need. And I've said this before, that's why I will forever be grateful for having spent some time in some third world countries like the Central African Republic, where the average annual income is 240 bucks a year. Or maybe Haiti, where Port-au-Prince, the, the average income is $1,300 a year inside of Port-au-Prince, but out in the rural areas, in Zoranger, where we've done some of our work, less than a dollar a day. Uganda, where it's just a few thousand dollars a year. Because when you go to places like that, your mind is immediately taken from what you don't have but you, and what you don't need to what they genuinely don't have. I'll never forget the first time I went to the Central African Republic, immediately, I think it was the second day I was there, Jim and I were riding through the streets of Bangui, and I looked at him, I said, Jim, this is my impression. My impression of the, the peop, these people that live here, and this is the capital city, they spend 99% of their energy every day wondering if they will get one meal. Forget three meals. 99% of their energy, will we get one meal today? And Jim says, you're right. See, when you're in a situation like that, your mind is immediately taken away from what you don't have and you don't need to what they genuinely, it just, it just happens automatically. When you get in those environments, it just happens automatically, but you have to become aware. And I think because of where we live, most of us have to do that artificially, which means we're going to have to find some organization, some ministry, some charity. Hopefully, Hope Community Church will show up on your financial radar. And then we have to make the intentional decision to help fund those ministries with a percentage of our income. That is the only way we're going to bridle our discontentment. But I think we have to take it a step further. We have to drive up our awareness. And you're going to have to do some homework here to figure out how you do that. But I can give you some, 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 some things you may want to think about. For example, we sent our first mission trip about 19 years ago to a little village of Gerange about... It's only about 60 miles outside of Port-au-Prince, but it takes you about eight hours to get there. And it, it's where people live on less than a dollar a day. And the first time we went, in fact, I see some of you here the, this weekend that went with us. About 25 or 30 of us, we went and we had a medical clinic. And we saw about 2,400 people that had never seen a medical professional in their life. Since those days, we now have a full-time medical clinic there that operates, that's staffed. We now have a private Christian school there where hundreds of children are getting an education, but again, they live on less than a dollar a day. So how do they do that? Well, one of the opportunities you would have for 35 bucks a month, you can actually sponsor a student. And for that $35, they get food, they get education, they get, they get access to medical attention. You will get a photo of that child. You can correspond with that child. In fact, if you go to one of our many mission trips to Haiti, you would have the opportunity to meet that child and spend time with that child. You can go to the Hope for Haiti Foundation, all the information you can do that. There, one time, Laura was sponsoring seven orphans like this between the Central African Republic, Haiti, 
and Uganda. Maybe that's something that you, you want to do. Let me just say this, by the way, a little plug for something. Coming up on Saturday night, August the 12th. This is so big, we're going to cancel the 6 o'clock service on Saturday night. We're going to be at the Coca Booth Amphitheater, and we're going to be having Rock Your World. We're bringing in Eddie Money, two tickets to paradise. We're bringing in Eddie Money. The Band of Brothers are going to be there. Trey is going to be there. Uh, Eddie Money's son has a band that's going to be there. We're, we're already setting the goal to raise over $250,000 that night for the concert. These guys are coming in really, really cheap. Eddie Money, what a great name to help us raise money, right? Half of it's going to go to Water for Good, to Jim Hawking, who continues to drill wells in the Central African Republic and start churches. Half of it's going to go to the Hope for Haiti Foundation. I got neighbors coming. People from the community are going to be coming. I'm going to be emceeing the event along with Bob Dumas from G105. We're going to have a great night. But again, it's an opportunity for you to be rich in good deeds, to be a person of generosity. That's coming up August the 12th. Maybe another thing is you could take your family on a mission trip. And you might be surprised if you sat down and talked to your children and said, okay, we could go to the beach for a week. Or how would you like to go to Haiti for a week? Sometimes our children are more aware of what's going on than we are. On top of that, you could take your kids to downtown Raleigh and partner with our Ship of Zion campus. You saw it on the loop this weekend. You could be a part of their community day where they hand out food to those who are less fortunate under-resourced than we are. You could be a part of the Bread of Life ministry where they feed over 4,000 people a month who, again, are, don't have the resources to eat every day. But you're going to have to do some homework. And you have to do some homework because understand, awareness drives generosity. And generosity is what bridles our discontentment. And as your awareness grows, your generosity grows. And as your generosity grows, your contentment will grow as well. Lenny Moen, my mentor out in California, he's at the age in life, he's 93 years old, still has a company that his sons run. He gives 100% of his profit to making sure that churches are being started in China. Isn't that cool? Because the more he studied, and he had, a, he had a daughter that was with Campus Crusade and a daughter who went there, and, and, and as he heard more about the awareness, and his awareness grew of what was going on and the need for the gospel, his generosity grew. And if you ask Lenny today, hey, you want to support this? Lenny would say, I will, if I'm still alive, and if everything that needs to be accomplished in China is accomplished. But it's got to go there first. Awareness drives generosity. And as your generosity grows, your contentment grows. I'm telling you, this is so important, not just for us, but for our children. Because without awareness, there's rarely generosity. And without planned, intentional generosity, we will remain victims of discontentment. We will continue to pursue bigger, better, more, faster, shinier. And I'm telling you, when it comes to your personal finances, that mentality has the potential to ruin you. So I've given you homework every week. Here's your homework for this week. You need to get together. You need to think this through. What are you going to do to bridle your discontentment? You need to have that conversation. You need to involve your children. What are we going to do to bridle our discontentment? What are you going to do? What are we going to do as a family to become more aware of what others don't have but they need? What are we going to do to make sure that our kids don't grow up thinking that it's all about them and what they don't have? Generosity bridles discontentment.
It curves our appetite for more. And I'm telling you, if you will begin to live this way at the end of the day, you'll be better off financially. Somebody else will be better off financially. God's kingdom will be better off financially. Hope Community Church will be better off financially. And everybody wins. Now next weekend, we've got two weeks left. I'm going to talk very specifically about the formula to restructure your finances so that you can begin to experience financial freedom. And I'm just going to tell you, it's going to be practical stuff. I'm going to challenge you to do it for 90 days. It's up to you. You know, you can go, the doctor can give you the medicine. You don't have to take it. You can lead a horse to water. You can't make him surf. That's for those of us who live in California, right? <laughs> so we're going we're gonna to lay it out there next week. We're going to set, you're going to have to decide what to do with it. And then the last week, I'm so excited because what's the name of the series? Multiply. We're going to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and we're going to look at the peril, we're going to look at the principle of sowing. And you're going to see why we call this series Multiply. And you're all going to, also going to say, you know, when you get sick and you go to the doctor, what's the first thing you do? You pray. You want God to have your back when you're sick. When your kids are running rebel, what do you do? You pray because you want God to have your back. Wouldn't you want God to be involved in your finances? You want to, I'm going to tell you that week how to guarantee you God will be involved in your finances. And a very practical reason of why he chooses to. You hear stories all the time. I gave. I didn't know how I was going to do it. And God supplied. I'm going to tell you why God supplies and why you can count on him. So make sure that you're going to be here for the next couple of weeks. If you're visiting for the first time, we're talking about money, but we're almost done. Two more weeks, okay? And then we're going to get back to some other cool stuff. And, uh, but if you're visiting, make sure you check out our next step at all of our campuses. We have a free small gift for you. Any information that you are interested in about the church, they can answer those questions. And it's been great just spending time with you this weekend. Let's pray. Father, you're an awesome God. You are generous God you loved us so much that when you saw us in our lost condition you gave and you gave us your most valuable possession your son Jesus Christ we're never more like you than when we give when Paul says be imitators of God it includes generosity and father help us to understand the simple principle of generosity is actually so key to us restructuring our finances so that we're not always bumping up against our income, but we're putting you first and others first. We're saving so we're being rich toward ourselves, and then we're living within our means. Help us to get it. Help us to find freedom. We love you for being so patient with us. In your name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you next weekend.